to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. You can take a seat if you haven't already. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Patrick Miller. I am one of the pastors at The Crossing. I work primarily with people in their 20s. Uh, and I've been doing this for going on about two and a half years now. But before that, I was on staff with Veritas. So uh, how many seniors do we have in the room? So I, I know some of you guys, because you were still around when I, when I was doing Veritas. Uh, I was on staff with Veritas for about seven years, like I said before. This is actually, I was counting in the back. This is my 11th fall retreat, uh, even since when I was a student. Uh, I know Kyle and Austin have me solidly beat on that. But still, you know, I've, I've got my bona fides is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I, I want to introduce a little, little bit about myself so you can get to know me. And we'll just enjoy the, 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 the weather and the rain because there's no <laughs> escaping from it. Uh, if you look on the screen, this is my, my wife and my daughter. Uh, that's my wife, Emily, and that's my three-year-old, Iris. Iris is hilarious. She's funnier than I am. That's a fact. Um, just a very strong will. She has a diet which consists of three different things, uh, quesadillas, uh, peanut butter and jelly, and chicken nuggets. Uh, we, we did recently, however, we, we convinced her to eat macaroni and cheese. Now, you should never have to convince a three-year-old to eat macaroni and cheese. That tells you something about my daughter, right? Uh, because, I mean, we're just sending this thing. We're, we're going to be so proud of you if you eat this mac and cheese. We're just going to be so proud. We're going to be. And finally, she eats it, and she looks up and goes, are you proud of me? And I go, yes. I'm so proud that you now eat macaroni and cheese. Uh, today, I made her macaroni and cheese, and we were sitting. I, I ate it with her. I like mac and cheese, all right? I'm not above a good mac and cheese lunch. And she, she watches me take a few bites, and she looks up at me, looks straight in my face, and she goes, Daddy, Mommy's going to be so proud of you when she hears that you ate that mac and cheese. So we trained her well. Uh, if you go to the next slide, you'll see my son, Oliver. Uh, he's about six months old now. That's him uh, in his little party swing on the beach. Uh, you know, he, he enjoyed the beach a lot. He hung out in there. It was a great little weekend. I don't have as much to say about him because he doesn't talk yet, but, you know, maybe someday I'll have more. He's a great guy, though. He's fun to be around. Uh, like I was saying, I, I've been coming to fall retreat since I was a student at Mizzou uh, all the way back in 2006. Uh, and so, you know, I, I was a pretty ordinary, everyday college guy. I became a Christian in college, actually. Uh, and so I remember one spring, there was this girl. And I was pretty interested in her, and I was playing the game. I think I was, I thought, you know, I was doing a really good job. I mean, like, things are going great. We're hanging out all the time. We're texting. I'm like, man, I've got, I've got an in on this. And then spring break rolls around, and she leaves for a week to go on the Jamaica spring break mission trip. And she comes back, and we're hanging out, and she is just all smiles. I'm like, oh, man, she's so happy to be back with me. This is awesome. Like, I've, I've got this. And so finally, I just look, and I go, why are you smiling so much? <laughs> And she looks at me and she goes, I met a guy in Jamaica. <laughs> oh, that's the moment I knew I got friend zoned. And so, uh, you know, I, I should have known before then, but whatever, you know. And so I'm, I'm like, okay, yeah, tell, 
tell me about this guy. And she's like, oh, he's, he's in Farmhouse. He's a president of Farmhouse. Actually, I'm like, oh, I, I, I know a lot of guys in Farmhouse. What's his name? She's like, oh, his name's Kyle Richter. And that is how I met Kyle, believe it or not. Yeah, he won. <laughs> he won that one. Uh, but that, that he, didn't, he didn't end up marrying her, so I guess we both lost technically, right? I don't, I don't think much happened there. Uh, I'm not sure I had much of a chance with this particular girl, if we're going to be honest. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, uh, Kyle ended up graduating. He came on staff. And later that, that same year, I, I was one of the first interns for Veritas, alongside Colleen Luley, who's married uh, to Andrew, who plays the drums. And so Colleen and I, we were interns. But back then, coming uh, onto Veritas staff, it wasn't like joining a staff team. It was a lot more like joining a fraternity, okay? So they didn't treat me like an intern. They treated me like a pledge. In fact, they called me Pledge. And it wasn't just Pledge. They had a lot of nicknames that I really hated, uh, but the one that they loved the best is they would call us the goats. I mean, over and over, the goats, the goats, the goats, and they would troll us. They would, I'll just show you. Did we lose our, our video? Oh, so I can't show you the video. Don't worry about it. Anyways, they would troll us on, on Facebook and leave videos of themselves bleeding like goats uh, at us. Uh, well, you heard it. That's, that's Austin Connor, in case you're wondering. And about, <laughs> the, the, the sound effects are, are great. We're good. We'll, we'll survive without it. Um, anyways, uh, so they, they, they were hard on me. You know, they made fun of me for the way that I smelled, which was kind of fair because I lived on East Campus at the time and I was living my best hippie life. Showers were infrequent, I will confess. Uh, but I rode my bike everywhere and they stole my bike seat one day. So I had to like go for a week without a bike seat. And that was my only form of transportation. I mean, they were hard on me. And finally, I just snapped. I was like, I can't take this anymore. It's over. And so Colleen and I, uh, we went to the store and we bought a bunch of balloons, okay? And we, we inflated them up and then we deflated them. And then we tied little strings to each balloon and attached to each string was a note. And on the note, it said, hello, my name's Kyle Richter and I'm a high school student at Platte City High School, and I'm doing a weather experiment. I let these go, and if you find it, would you please give me a phone call to tell me where you found it at? <laughs> and we drove around Columbia for about an hour throwing these balloons out the windows onto the sidewalks. Uh, and, and Kyle had had a late night the, the night before. Uh, he was, the, the next day was actually a friend of his wedding. Kyle, what, do you remember what time you got your first call? 5.30 a.m. <laughs> It was a great day. It was a really good day. Do you remember how many calls you got? <laughs> His voicemail was shut down by 8 o'clock. Uh, so Kyle ended up, he, he got phone, hundreds of phone calls really actually over the next few months. It didn't, it didn't stop. But he gets his first phone call at 5.30 and it's, you know, this old dude is apparently out walking at 5.30 in the morning. He's like, oh, is this Kyle? And Kyle's like, yeah, this is Kyle. He's grogging. He goes, I found your balloon. <laughs> and Kyle's like, you found my balloon? Yeah, you're the high schooler. He said to call you. And, and they're kind of going back and forth. And finally, Kyle's smart enough. He realized what's happened. And he's such a nice guy that he just decides he needs to play along with it, right? Because he doesn't want to embarrass this poor person. Um, and in fact, he's such a nice guy. Every person who calls him, he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't tell him that it was a prank. He just plays along, acts like the high school student takes down their information. So, you know, as it turned out, I didn't just prank Kyle. Uh, I pranked every person who picked up one of these balloons, you know? And here's the thing, right? They, they don't know who Kyle Richter is. 
They have no way of knowing who Kyle Richter is. The only thing that they know about Kyle Richter is what they have based on their experience, right? Based on their experience, what they've got on that little note, what that little note says about Kyle Richter. And it's kind of a truism about life, isn't it? We only know people based on our experience of them. We can't know anything outside of our experience. It's the only way that we actually get to know anybody. A friend of mine uh, was taking uh, her, her four-year-old son to a yearly checkup with the doctor. And it, they go through the checkup, it's great, no problems. And the doctor asks, do you guys have any more questions? And mom's like, oh no, this was great, we're, we're, we're doing fine. But they look over at, at Charlie, her son, and he's got this look of consternation. I mean, he's thinking really, really hard. It's obvious that he's got a question. So they kind of wait, and finally he looks up, and he looks at the doctor, and he says, what's Jesus look like? Mom's embarrassed. You know, she's like, oh, he's just joking. I don't know what he's talking about. She kind of like, you know, gets him up and gets him down to the car, and she sets him down. She's like, why did you ask the doctor what Jesus looks like? And Charlie seems a little bit surprised. He looks at her, and he goes, well, Mom... You told me that Jesus lives inside my heart and that guy's got an x-ray machine so he must see Jesus all the time. It, it's not just true of people, right? What, 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 what we know about God is based on our experiences. Our view of who God is is based on our experiences. In Charlie's case, it's based on his experience with his mother, what she's told him uh, to be true about God, right? That was his experience. That's what he believed to be true about God. But it's true of us too, right? Let me ask you a question. What experiences in your life have shaped your view of God? What experiences in your life have shaped your view of God? I once heard it said that the most important thing about you is what you believe to be true about God. And in Christian circles, we have a fancy word for that. It's called theology. Theology is just a fancy word for what you believe to be true about God. And everybody has a theology, whether it's God doesn't exist or God does exist or whatever it is you believe about God, that is your theology. So your experience shapes your theology, the theology deep inside your heart. So if we had an x-ray machine and we could look inside your heart and see your theology, your view of who God is, what would we see? What picture of Jesus would be there? And how did that picture of Jesus get there? What experiences brought that picture of Jesus there? Because again, our experiences shape our view of God. Our experiences shape our view of God. Or, or to be more precise, our experiences misshape our view of God. Because we all live on this side of the fall, which means that we've all experienced hard things We've suffered, we've experienced loneliness, hurt, pain, anxiety. Some of us have experienced trauma, really hard things in our life, and all of those experiences, they shape our view of God. We've been sinned against, but we've also sinned against other people, right? And those experiences, they all muddle together and they all shape our deep down view of who God is. This weekend at Fall Retreat, I want to introduce you, or perhaps reintroduce you to a woman whose experiences shaped her deep down heart view, heart theology of who God is. Uh, she uh, was someone who lived in a broken world just like us and the world broke her life into pieces and her experiences of tragedy shaped her view of God. Uh, the woman's name is Naomi. 
Naomi was the mother-in-law of Ruth, and we read Naomi's story in the book of Ruth. Interestingly, uh, the book of Ruth actually begins and ends with Naomi's story. It begins with a tragedy and how that shapes her, and it ends with a story of restoration and renewal. So tonight, though, tonight, we need to talk about tragedy. Tonight, we need to talk about tragedy. It is really pouring out there, isn't it? I'm just going to acknowledge it. Uh, we need to talk about tragedy. And to understand the tragedy inside of Naomi's life, you, we're going to have to understand Naomi's world, okay? Because Naomi lived in a very different world than you or I live in. She lived 1,000 years before Jesus, and she actually lived in the town of Bethlehem, okay? She lived in the town of Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born. And like everybody at that time, she lived in the ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture, which characterized everything around her, okay? And, and we're gonna have to do some hard work here not to be judgmental, right? Not, not, not to be intolerant of how her world works because it's very different than ours. Uh, but here's what you need to know about her world. In her world, the family unit was called the father's house, okay? The family unit was called the father's house. Uh, in Hebrew, the Beit Av. And, and the father's house consisted of 30 to 60, 30 to 60 extended relatives who all lived on a compound together, okay? And they're all related to each other. And the oldest male, the patriarch, he kind of runs the show. He's the one who's in charge. And in that world, men were the only ones who had rights to property. They were the only ones who had rights to uh, enact legal action. And so as a result, if you were a woman in that world, your, your home, your, your well-being, your welfare, it, you only had that if you had a near male relative, a father, a husband, a son, someone who could incorporate you into the father's house, into their father's house. It's the first thing you've got to know about Naomi's culture. The second thing you've got to know about, know about Naomi's culture is food scarcity. People in the Old Testament, they spent 60 days a year going hungry. 60 days a year going hungry. They did not have a lot of food. The main job of the father's house was to provide food. That's what they're spending all of their time trying to do. So you have to imagine for a second, if you were a woman and you didn't have a, a father or a, or a husband or a son and you were outside of the father's house, that meant that you were destitute. You had no way of getting food, you had no way of getting protection, you had no legal recourse. And this is why God's word is full again and again and again and again of commands to love who? To love the widow. Because they were amongst the most vulnerable people in their day and age. Okay, so with that context set up, let's hop into the story of Naomi, okay? So, I gotta find my place in here. We're gonna start in Ruth 1, and just, just listen along with me, okay? This is how people used to do the Bible. They would just read it, and you would hear it, and it would be a story, okay? So let's just, just go along with me here, okay? In those days, in the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. So pause, a famine is a food shortage. Now that's a food shortage in a world where food scarcity is already a daily reality. So people are dying from hunger. That's what a famine is, okay? And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, okay? So there's this guy in Judah and he takes his family and he moves them to a country just to the east of them because apparently they have food, okay? Let's keep going. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. That's the character we're looking at. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She's still left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. What kind of questions do you think Naomi's asking at this point? Why, God? That's just, she's gotta be asking, why, God? What are you doing? My husband and I, we had so much life to live. He wanted to see his grandkids, but you didn't stop there. You didn't just take my husband. You took my first son, and then you took my second son, and you didn't just take all of these people that I love. That would have been enough. No, now I'm destitute. I am a foreigner living as a foreign refugee in a different country. Naomi is in the pits of tragedy, in the pits of loss. She has absolutely nothing but she's smart, she's really smart. She knows that if she's going to survive this, and by the way, I'm not talking metaphorically, like if she's literally going to bodily, physically survive, she's gonna have to go back to her hometown of Bethlehem. Because maybe in Bethlehem, maybe there'll be someone there who will take care of her, bring her into a father's house where she'll be provided for. And so she goes on this journey to Bethlehem and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they go along with her. Uh, But Naomi, she has these three interchanges back and forth, back and forth, back and forth where she tells them, go back. Don't come with me. Don't stay with me. Go back, go back, go back. And finally, Naomi gets so frustrated, she just lays out her theology to them. She tells them what she believes to be true about God. And what she believes to be true about God has been shaped by, guess what, her experiences, been shaped by her experiences. So let's just catch what it is that Naomi says to them. In verse 13, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that, this is the theological part, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. What does she believe to be true about God? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. God is against me. God is not for me. Okay, but how do you know that, Naomi? She'd say, well, my experience, look at what's happened. If God was for me, my husband would be alive. If God wasn't against me, he wouldn't have taken away my two sons. What do you mean, how do I know it? My experience, it's a fact, that's what's happening. Orpah, she listens, and she goes back to her father's house. Ruth, on the other hand, she's sticky, she's stubborn, she won't give up, and so she goes along with Naomi to Bethlehem. And guess what, when she gets to Bethlehem, it causes a buzz, a stir, there's gossip going around. And again, Naomi tells us something about what she believes about God. In verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, right? There's a buzz. And the woman said, is this Naomi? Is that her? She left a long time ago. She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Naomi is the Hebrew word for pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Don't call me pleasant. When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity, evil upon me. Our experience shapes our view of who God is. And Naomi has seen from her experience that God is capricious, right? He's as reliable as the wind. Sometimes he's for you, but sometimes he's against you. Sometimes you're full, but sometimes you're empty. And right now, Naomi is sure of this. God is against me. 
How does she know it? Her experiences. We're not that different, are we? Our experiences shape or often misshape our view of who God is. What experiences in your life have shaped how you see God? I know I've seen this in my own life. Uh, I, I, I became a Christian when I was 19, and pretty quick after becoming a Christian, one of the issues that I had to deal with in my relationship with God was that I just had this deep down sense that I was not worthy of him. That he didn't want to be around me, that I was kind of shameful to him, that he didn't want me to be in his presence, that there was always a problem between us. And even though I knew maybe that's not what should be, intellectually, I couldn't shake it. I remember I was meeting with a mentor, and we're talking about my life story, and I ended up sharing this, this, this story. It's a story that's just been burned into my consciousness. It's one of the most distinct memories from my childhood. I'm standing at the top of uh, the basement stairs leading down into the basement in my house, and down in the basement, the light is on because my dad's home office is down in the basement. And my dad is down there. He's in his home office, and I, I still remember the feeling. I want nothing more, this little six-year-old me, I want nothing more than to go down there just to be with with my dad, but I also know in my little six-year-old heart that I'm not welcome, that I'm not allowed. It's not just that I'm unallowed, it's that I'm unwanted. I, I know deep down my dad doesn't want me down there. My dad isn't interested in having me down there. I'm not really worthy of being around my dad. Now here I am in college and I think, I'm not worthy of God. God isn't interested in me. God's unallowed me from his presence. Our experience shapes our theology, our view of who God is. Different story. Uh, this is a story of a young woman who was involved with Veritas years ago. Um, and she was kind of one of those rock star people, right? She, she was involved in everything, sororities, organizations. She did it all, right? She was super involved. And, and she was a small group leader. And she wasn't just a normal small group leader. She was one of those above and beyond small group leaders. I mean, everything she did, she did to the max. She was the best. And then one day, she just burned out. Just stopped. Like she quits everything all of a sudden. So I remember I'm meeting with her, and I'm like, what happened? Why did you feel like you just had to do all of this stuff constantly, all the time? Why did you feel like that? She goes, well, when God puts something in front of you, you you're responsible for it, right? When God puts a person or a thing, like, you've gotta be the one who takes care of it. You've gotta be the one who owns it. You've gotta be the one who makes sure it happens. And, and God, he's just put way too much stuff on my plate. I can't handle what he's trying to get me to do. We kept talking and she ended up sharing a memory uh, when she was 16 years old. She went to the DMV with her dad to go do her driver's license test. And so she does the test, she passes with flying colors, it's awesome, and her dad gets back into the car, and they're getting ready to go home, he says, hold on, hold on, hold on. And he takes the keys, and he hands them to her. And he says, it's yours now. And she's ecstatic, because she didn't even expect to get a car. Her dad's car is actually kind of a nice car. She, she can't believe it, I'm getting my dad's car? And so she's ready to leave, we're getting out of here, and he goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a second, there's something I need to tell you. I haven't been very happy. I haven't been happy in my marriage with your mom, I haven't been happy in our family, I haven't been happy in my career, but we both know that your mom's not super mentally stable, and I knew you and your sister, you kinda needed me to be the one who could get you around, take you where you needed to be, 
But now you're 16, you can take yourself where you need to go and you can take your sister where you need to go. I just, I can't do this anymore, I can't do this anymore. I just need you to take this responsibility. Please don't drop this ball, please make sure that you take care of them. I know that you're mature, I know that you can handle this. And he gets out of the car and he walks away and he disappears for three years, just gone, three years. And now here she is in college and she thinks God's telling her, you're responsible for the world. You've gotta do everything. You've gotta be everything to everyone. Please don't drop this ball because I can't do it anymore. Our experience shapes our view of who God is. Our experience shapes our view of who God is. We see it in Naomi's story. I've seen it in my story. I promise you it's true in your story. So again, the question is, what experiences have shaped your deep down heart view of who God is. Do you know what I like about Naomi? She's honest. There's no phoniness. There's no smoke screens with her, right? Like when they ask her what she thinks about God, she's like, God's against me. She's perfectly honest about it. It, We all know, right? There's really two different kinds of theologies, right? We can have a theology of the head. These are the things that we know and believe to be true about God. Is that a bird? Oh gosh, I just had to make sure. It's just a butterfly, let it fly. It's just trying to get out of the rain. I've had birds in my house before, it's freaky, okay? Um, <laughs> so, Naomi, she, 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 you can have a head theology, right? Ideas about who God is. These are the kind of theology, the view we get of God from books and from the Bible. It's the things that we say when we're asked a question, you know, God is good, God is sovereign, God is fill in the blank. And it's good to have a head theology, right? That's a good thing, but it's different than your deep down heart theology. Because your deep down heart theology, that's the thing that you really believe. That's the thing that you really live your life out of. That's your practical theology. It's how you're living your practical life. It all comes out of that. And it's that deep down heart theology, that's the theology that gets shaped by your experiences. I'm sure Naomi had a great head theology. She probably could have said lots of wonderful things about God, but when she's asked the question, she's just straight up honest. This is what I really believe about God. This is what I'm really living out of. The obvious challenge is our our heart theology, our view of God and our heart, it's a carnival mirror, right? It's a distorted picture of God. It's not a real picture of God because it's been shaped by all of these difficult things in our lives, right? All these experiences. It's a funhouse version of Jesus, not a real version of Jesus. And so the question then becomes, if my experiences are what shape my view of God, and I can't control my experiences, I can't pick my past or my future, how in the world can I ever get it to where my heart view of God, my deep down heart theology of God, actually matches who God is? How can I do that? How can that happen? How can God ever refresh and renew and give me a fresh vision of who he is in my life? How is that possible? Is it possible? I think it is possible. And I think that the book of Ruth has the secret to that question right inside of it. In fact, I think that there's a number of steps we can take to have our deep down heart theology of God renewed, refreshed, transformed. It's what I hope God does to your heart this weekend that you see what's happening in there, how you see God, and that by the time you walk out from here, you're gonna have a fresh vision, a fresh love of who he is. But tonight, we've already seen the first step. Do you wanna know the first step to having your deep down heart view of God transformed? You wanna know the first step? Be honest. Be honest. 
That's the first step. It's really simple. Naomi lays it out right for us. Be honest. Be honest about the experiences that have shaped how you see God. Be honest about how you really see God deep down. Be honest about what, how you see him and how you're living that out in your life. Be honest. That's the first step. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they come up, I, I want to start off fall retreat um, in prayer. And, 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 you know, we're kind of in a living metaphor right now, right? Because you know what life is like sometimes? Sometimes life is like this crazy storm where the rain is being blown sideways. And then God creates these moments where he puts a shelter around you. He puts a shelter and the rain's all falling off and you can hear it pattering. It's still there, the anxiety, you can still feel it, but it's not in here, right? Because God puts a shelter around you so that you can come and be with him. The Bible says where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there. God's spirit, whether or not you realize it, God's spirit is right here over all of you. Jesus is right here with all of us. So what I wanna do is I wanna create some sacred space for us just to lay out our experiences before God. So if you guys wanna knock down the lights, I want this just to be something private that you can do in your own hearts. What I want you to do is, I want, if you will, just take an open posture, okay? Just hold out your hands, lay them on your lap. Just hold out your hands, lay them on your lap. And I want you just to bow your head. And I'm just gonna give you some prompts. And what I want you to do is I want you to be honest with God. I want you to take your experiences before God. You pray with me, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know me. Search me, O God, right now, and know me. With an open posture bodily, with an open posture in your heart, I want you to let God search you. I want you to bring your experiences before God. What are those experiences that have shaped your deep down heart view of God? I want you to bring those experiences before him. Be honest about them. Share how they've changed how you see him. Bring them before God right now. God says to you in Psalm 139, I have searched you and known you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up, I discern you from afar. I search out your path and you're lying down and am acquainted with all your ways. I hem you in behind and before. I formed your inward parts. I knitted you in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I want you now to Continue sharing your heart to God. I want you to bring the anxieties that you have before God right now. I want you to share with him how your experiences of fear and anxiety have shaped your deep down heart view of who he is. Bring your fears and anxieties before him now.
is what God says to you in the book of Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Fear not. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Hear that in your heart right now. God speaking to you. You are mine. I want you now to bring your, your sins before God. Share the ways that your experiences of sinning against him have misshaped your view of who he is. Confess those sins in his presence. what God says to you in the Psalms, Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions, your sins from you. As a father has compassion on his children, so I have compassion on you. Let's just do one more prayer before him. I want you to bring your heart, all of your heart right now, into Jesus' presence. Know that he's here. Know that he's the one who's created this shelter, this sacred space to be with you. And ask him to give you a fresh vision of who he is. Ask him, say, Jesus, this weekend, would you just take hold of my heart? Would you take hold of my desires? Would you take hold of my love? Jesus, would you take hold of me, please? Bring your heart into Jesus' presence. Heavenly Father, we have no power to change our stories, to change our past, our present, our futures. We don't have the power to defeat our enemies or the hurdles that lie in front of us. Father, we don't know what to do, but, 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 but you do. Our eyes are on you this weekend. Our eyes are on you this weekend. Our eyes are on you. Take hold of our hearts, take hold of our desires, take hold of our loves. We pray that you would refresh us, that you renew our deep down heart vision of who you are, that you would captivate us with your love and your glory and your beauty. Our eyes are on you, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.